Blessed to be here with you today. Hope you're doing well. Let's go ahead and jump into prayer and into the Word of God. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together once again, worship your holy name. Father, please speak to our hearts this morning through your word. Open up our eyes to your truth. Help us, Lord, to understand what you have for us. Remove any distractions, any hindrances, anything, Lord, that's been on our mind throughout this week that's not of you. Remove it, Lord, far from us. Lord, we give our sin to you right now. Forgive us, cleanse us, wash us anew. Help us, Lord, in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our relationships to love as you love us, to care for others, to be a light, Lord, in our families, in our friends' lives, and in this world. So help us, Lord. We need your spirit to be filled with your spirit. So, Lord, speak to our hearts right now through your word. Bless this message. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Unify us as a fellowship. And may Christ be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Title of today's teaching is Encountering Christ in Colossians. Encountering Christ in Colossians. I originally was titling it A Journey Through Colossians, then I went to Encountering Colossians, and then I typed in Encountering Colossians online, and I saw that someone else preached a sermon series, Encountering Christ in Colossians, and I wasn't going to title it that, but I figured this person wouldn't care. Some pastor somewhere else, probably on the other side of the world, so you'll never see this. So encountering Christ in Colossians, and I've been praying for some time, Lord, I want to walk through a book with the fellowship, and what book do you want me to walk through? And throughout this week, Colossians kept just coming to the forefront of my mind, and I wasn't even reading it at the time. I've been going through the New Testament, on I'm in the book of Acts, and for some reason, Colossians just kept coming to my mind. And so I figured maybe that was the Lord just impressing that on on my heart. And so that's where I've landed. And I just, I want to share a couple things that have been on my heart lately, something that I've been wrestling with in my mind. I want to give a quick little introduction and background to the book of Colossians and then jump right into the first 13 verses or so that will help us introduce this book to us. I've been asked um, by several different people over the last couple months, even other pastors at other churches, what kind of preacher are you? Are you a expository preacher or are you a topical preacher? Are you a verse-by-verse, book-by-book, exegetical, expository preacher? They don't usually say it like that, but are you an expository preacher or are you a topical preacher? And, you know, topical preaching kind of gets a bad name because many of these I just say mega church pastors who tend to fleece the flock and preach an easy believism and a watered down gospel. That's all they do. They just preach topical messages and it's it's feel good messages. It's the topic like Jesus wants your best life now and so 10 ways to solve your bad habits or whatever it may be and but topical preaching is actually a really good thing in many times because it applies to our lives what we need in the moment and it could be topics such as even hard topics like abortion or holiness or fleeing from sin or the wrath of God or all these different things. Um, So I think I favored topical preaching, although I understand the benefits of going verse by verse, book by book through the Bible. But what's been interesting to me is that the people that I've heard that most from, that you need to be an expository preacher, you need to be verse by verse, book by book, many of them look up to Charles Spurgeon, and he's called the Prince 
of preachers to many of them. He's the preacher of preachers. And even Charles Spurgeon, many of them would admit, wasn't necessarily an expository, verse-by-verse, book-by-book preacher. He would tend to take a verse and a verse or two, and that would be his sermon based off of a verse here, a verse there, and he would apply it, hopefully contextually and faithfully, but he wasn't expository in the way that we see today. And so it's just been something I'm wrestling with. Lord, what, is, w- what should preaching look like? There isn't necessarily a template laid out in Scripture. Paul doesn't tell Timothy, preach expositorily, Timothy, verse by verse, book by book, starting with Genesis 1-1 and work your way through. We don't have necessarily that template. We know that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. So we know it's all inspired. We know we need to know all of it and teach through it, but how do we do that? How do we go about that? And there are different ways. And so what kind of preacher am I? I'm, I, I'm a preach the word kind of preacher. That's, that's what I like to say. I just want to preach the word faithfully and accurately and contextually. I want people to be encouraged. I want people to be strengthened. I want people to know the truth. I want people to glorify God, to live life's where he is magnified in their lives, to where they grow in their love for him and for one another. And so if preaching does that, then I think that the preacher is being faithful to the text. If he's preaching the truth in context and it's causing you to love God more, love your neighbor more, love God's word more, hate sin, love him, I think you're onto something then as a preacher. I heard of a man by the name of Joseph Carroll who preached 424 sermons through the book of Job. It took him 24 years to preach 424 sermons from 1643 to 1666. And I was telling Leah the other day, I, I don't know if how, how that was encouraging and beneficial, 24 years in one book, but perhaps it was. I don't know. You know, Jeremiah had a certain message for his day at a certain time period. So the question for us today is, Lord, what do you, and for me always is, Lord, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say to your people at this time, at this place, to encourage them? And so that's constantly what's on my heart. When I went to college, the professors, and many of them were ordained, or at least some of them were ordained pastors within the Lutheran tradition of a very, I would say, liberal wing of Lutheranism, they talked about the Bible as if it was just a textbook. It was merely a historical book with some interesting facts in it. And for them, it was as if it was on par with like Homer's Odyssey or the Epic of Gilgamesh or Plato's Republic. It, it was in a book of antiquity and it had some good things to say and it brought comfort. And, and But is that how we are supposed to view the scripture? Is it just a life manual for us? Is it just a set of morals for us to follow? God's word says we're to tremble at his word, to rejoice at his word, to worship over his word. And I remember sitting in those classes and I may have as well just been in a math class or a business class or an art class or uh, here's your religion class. It was dealt in almost the same way. There wasn't a weightiness to the word. I didn't see that. And I remember even sitting there in class going, what religion are they? Like, is this some cult? Is this some like, it's not Christianity that I'm hearing and seeing, so what is it? And that's when I 
began to learn about what liberal Christianity is, which is not really Christianity at all. But listen to what God's word says about how we are supposed to treat his word and the posture that we should have for it. Isaiah 66, 2. God says, this is the one I will look to. Some translations say, this is the one I look with favor. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. You want God's favor to be upon your life? You want him to look to you, hear you, tremble at his word. Psalm 119, 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Jeremiah 15, 16. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. Psalm 119, 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. We want to be in awe of his word. We want to rejoice at his word. We want to worship over his word. We want to tremble. That should be our heart's posture to his word. It's not just a textbook. It's to be trembled at. So we must be reminded of these things. If you're reading the Bible or teaching the Bible or studying the Bible, it's not just a mere textbook. It's powerful. It's inspired. And it should not be handled lightly. I had a co-worker that would take his kids up here to the local rivers and he would go um, panning for gold with them. And he would tell me that, oh, we went panning for gold this weekend and yeah, we found little gold specks and he would just tell me how much his kids enjoyed that. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I'd like to go up there and do that. So if any of you guys know where we can do that up here, let me know. Um, He never found any gold nuggets or anything like that, but so I did find a couple specks. Maybe it was fool's gold and he thought it was real gold. I don't know. But when studying the Bible, that's, in a sense, how we should be. We're like a man panning for gold. We're we're dissecting the scripture and examining the scripture and turning over rocks and looking through God's word, and there's gold all throughout it. And we need to be searching and seeking and expectantly and joyfully waiting on God and seeing what he is going to show us and reveal to us in his word. So that's what I love about Colossians. It's like a gold minefield in the book of of Colossians. It's jam-packed with a rich theology of Jesus Christ. Its sister epistle is Ephesians. If you go through the book of Ephesians and Colossians, you can see, and I saw one commentator, he did this, you can see all these similar verses as you go through it that are almost identical in different places of Ephesians and Colossians. And in Colossians and Ephesians as well, but as we're going to look at here in just a second, you have these in him statements, these by him, in him, through him, for him, all these statements throughout the book of Colossians. It's the truths of who Christ is, what he's done for us, what he continues to do, all the blessings we have in him. So let's get a little sample, a little flavor, if you will, if you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at verses 5 through 15. Colossians 2, 5 through 15 states, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him 
having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised up with him through faith. In the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and he and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So we see walk in him, be rooted and built up in him. And all the fullness of the deity dwells in him in bodily form. In him you have been, been made complete. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You were buried with him, raised up with him through faith. You've been made alive together with him. These are truths that we need to grab hold of. In him, through him, by him. These are the gold nuggets that we're talking about. This is just a little sample of the gold, the treasure that's found in this letter it's no wonder it states in chapter 2 verse 3 in him or in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge Paul's saying in Jesus is that's where all wisdom and knowledge is hidden all these treasures are found in Jesus Christ that word treasures is thesaurus what English word does that sound like Thesaurus. Thesaurus, right? That's where we get the English word thesaurus for that word there for treasures. A storehouse of treasure. A storehouse of synonyms is what, what one Greek lexicon stated. All the thesauruses, all the dictionaries don't have the words to describe the beauty, the honor, the glory, if you will, the treasure found in Jesus Christ if someone walked in this building today with a thousand pound gold nugget and said deny Christ and here you go I'll give you this gold nugget what would you say hopefully easy answer right keep your gold nugget keep thousands of thousand pound gold nuggets keep all the gold in the world and give me Jesus what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul yet how many people today when they're tempted by money, fame, power, and the enemy says deny Christ, they're willing and ready to sign up for that. You want to know where your treasure is. Where your treasure is, so there your heart will be also. Is your treasure God's word? Is your treasure Jesus Christ? Then when the earthly treasures come your way, they don't compare. You see them for what they are. God does give us everything to enjoy in this world, but you will keep a proper perspective. You will keep it in its proper place. 
So Paul hits on knowledge a lot through this book, as we see here in Colossians 2.3, the wisdom and knowledge. Why does Paul hit on knowledge so much? Well, because Gnosticism is pervading this church and pervading many of the churches, and it will do so for several hundred years after the time period of the apostles. And even some say that forms of Gnosticism are still around and alive today. All the New Testament epistles were written to combat some heresy, some false teaching, some sin that was creeping into the church, or at least they were warning to look out for such things. I mean, when you read all the epistles, they're all combating something. Now, when you read Philippians, one of my favorite letters, there's not really a lot going on in that church. Paul doesn't have a ton of things to say about false teachers or sin that's crept in the church. It's completely different from Corinthians where nearly every verse is written against some sort of heresy, false teaching, sin, leaven that's in the church. But you get to Philippians, and even in Philippians 3, he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil, evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. So you guys are doing well, but watch out. These, the enemy is still lurking. There's still false teaching out there, so be on guard. And so the book of Colossians is no different. These false teachers have come into the church, and Paul is going to warn them throughout because it seems that they've given attention to philosophical speculations, reverence to angelic beings, as you'll see, um, placing a wrong emphasis on feasts and new moons and, and fasting and Sabbaths and all of these things, even circumcision, Paul addresses in this letter. But the greatest, perhaps, threat to the church is Gnosticism. And perhaps you say, well, what is Gnosticism? And that's what I was wondering as well. And one article I read said, the title was, How Do You Define Gnosticism? And I clicked on it, and it said, Defining Gnosticism is as easy as nailing down a flopping fish. That's how you define Gnosticism. It's like pinning down jello. It's, it's, it's always moving. It's always changing. It's, al it's got all these different forms. But I guess a simple definition, if you will, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. And so that Greek word gnosis is actually used throughout the New Testament in describing Christ and his knowledge. So the Greek word itself isn't bad, kind of like symbols are hijacked in our day. Maybe you can think of a couple sim symbols, maybe flags and things like that, that people walk around at parades and you can figure that out. The rainbow's not bad in and of itself, but it's been twisted, right? And that's what the Gnostics are constantly doing. That's what all false teachings do. They twist the truth. They have a form of the truth. They have a little bit of the truth, and then they, they twist it. So Gnosticism claims to have knowledge, a special knowledge. Well, we as Christians have knowledge. So that's what Paul's arguing here. Have knowledge which is found in Jesus Christ, a true knowledge. And he's going to mention that in Colossians 1.9 and Colossians 1.10 and Colossians 2.2 and 2.3 and 3.10, he talks about a true knowledge, an epigenosis, an intensified firsthand experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ and God the Father. But these Gnostics said, we have this special knowledge, and this special knowledge tells us that essentially matter is evil. Therefore, we do not attribute humanity to Jesus Christ. Since matter is evil and Jesus was good, therefore he didn't 
come in a human body. Therefore, he didn't die on the cross in a fleshly body. He wasn't buried in his human form. He wasn't raised in his human form. So how does Paul combat this heresy? Well, Colossians 1, 19 through 23. He says in Colossians 1, 20, we have peace through the blood of his cross. He's going to hammer on the body, the physical body, the blood, the physical death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to combat this heresy. So we have peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.22, he mentions his fleshly body. And then in Colossians 2.9, he says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Fullness of deity. Christ is deity, full, fully God, fully man, in bodily form. So this city of Colossae was known for its blending of religious influences, Judaism, Gnosticism, pagan influence, angel cult worship was all synchronized in this church. It kind of sounds like the church today. It kind of sounds like America today. Perhaps you've seen those, those stickers coexist and tolerance and inclusion and everyone's included at the table. We everyone except those who believe in the Bible. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, you're not accepted. You're a bigot. We hate you, but everybody else, that's where the world is heading. I want to look at Colossians 1, 1 through 12. I want to ask three questions. Three questions that I want to answer to help us understand this letter a little bit more fully. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Some commentators believe Paul never physically went to Colossae, and they take clues from chapter 1 and chapter 2, even verse 7, where it says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved bondservant. Epaphras 
Tradition tells us and several scriptures allude to this fact that Epaphras was there preaching the gospel, preaching the word. And it seems to be when you put all the puzzle pieces together that Epaphras started the church in Colossae. And here he is at Rome with Paul relaying some of the things that are going on in the church. And you see Paul's love for them. You see how he wants to guard them from the heirs of the enemy and build them up in Christ and teach them this theology. It's almost as if he was like, I'm going to knock two birds out with one stone. I'm going to send a letter to Colossae and a letter to Ephesus because they're going through similar things. I'm going to write similar letters and I'm going to bless both churches even though I haven't been to this one. So it's kind of interesting when you look at that. First question for us is, seems pretty simple. Who wrote this letter? And you say, Paul, right? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But look at the second half of verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. We're told that throughout Scripture that Paul has 13 letters as we read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Titus and First and Second Timothy, Philemon, and so forth. You can count up 13 letters, and that's if you include Hebrews, which doesn't have a name attributed it to it, though many scholars and commentators believe Paul wrote Hebrews. So 13 letters that Paul gets attributed to him. Yet here's Timothy. And Timothy seems to be in the shadow of the apostle Paul. We don't give Timothy credit for writing these letters, but here he is mentioned. And if you read Romans and Romans chapter 16, verse 22, this person named Tertius pops up and he says, I, Tertius, write, I'm the one who has written this letter and I greet you in the Lord. So who wrote Romans? Well, Tertius wrote Romans and he wrote it through Paul. I think it was called a nemesis. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's when you have someone who writes a letter for you. I believe Paul in his older age was losing perhaps his eyesight. He wasn't able to write possibly. And so he used someone or maybe someone who had perfected the craft, so to speak, could write faster than him and he would dictate his message. And so scholars go back and forth. Is that what Timothy was doing here? Is that why Paul includes Timothy? Because Timothy actually wrote this letter and some of these other letters? Or is he just mentioned as like Paul's sidekick or here's Timothy with me and we're greeting you together? I know for sure that Paul loved Timothy. Paul cared about Timothy. And I feel like Timothy is like an offensive lineman who doesn't get credit for all the quarterback does, right? All you hear is Tom Brady, Tom Brady this, Tom Brady that. How about the guys that are in the trenches the whole game who are, you know, bleeding and broke their ankles and are doing all this work so that he's not getting tackled or whatever quarterback it is. You're always hearing about him, though. And here's Timothy behind the scenes, I believe, encouraging Paul, ministering to Paul, helping Paul. And Paul's getting a lot of the credit And rightly so. Paul's an amazing man of God. But we see that Timothy is called our brother. The Greek word is adelphos. You know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Adelphos. Delphos means womb. So adelphos literally means joined at the womb. And this word's used of physical brothers throughout the New Testament. It's used of spiritual brothers. And I believe... Paul and Timothy were closer than any physical brothers could be. Their bond in the faith was so close. We see in Acts 16.3, Paul's on a missionary journey, and he goes to the cities of Lystra and Derby, I believe it was, and there's Timothy. 
He's this young man, perhaps a teenager, and Paul spots him and says, I want you to go along in the ministry with me. He saw potential in Timothy. He saw his godliness and his faithfulness. And from that point forward, he took Timothy. He circumcised Timothy because his father was not a believer, just so that no one would stumble. None of the Jews would stumble over that fact. That's a whole other teaching. But he took Timothy alongside, and Timothy was faithful until the end. Timothy's mentioned in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philemon, Hebrews, and we have two letters written directly to Timothy. The question is, who loved who more? Did Paul love Timothy more? Did Timothy love Paul more? Somewhat fascinating to me. If you read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you. He calls Timothy his beloved son. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 9, make every effort to come to me soon. So no doubt they had this really close bond in the Lord. But I love what Paul says of Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 4. He says, longing to see you, I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. It's as if when Timothy left Paul, when he was away from Paul, he was in tears. Departing from Paul left him sad, remorseful. Am I going to see you again? I just love this bond in the faith. So I had to take a moment and pause and just look at verse 1. Do you have a Timothy in the Lord? That's the question. Do you have a Timothy? Here's Paul, 62 AD, writing from a Roman prison, and there is Timothy. As Christians, we all need a Timothy. If you don't have one, pray that you get one. Another prayer that you should pray is that you would be a Timothy to someone else. Because a lot of us are like, man, I want to be discipled, or I want to be encouraged, or I need a mentor, I need, a, I need someone like a Timothy, and praise God, yes. But also, what about, now it's time for me to get out of my comfort zone and go be like a Timothy to someone else. That when someone like a Paul says, come along, side me, and help, you're ready. Are you in a position to do something like that? What if Timothy said, no, Paul, I- I'm busy here. There's work to be done in this city. Go take someone else. Paul wouldn't have been as blessed. He wouldn't have done as much in the ministry if he didn't have Timothy. So people need encouraging. They need to be ministered to. They need help. Be a Timothy and pray that you have a Timothy in your life. Question number two. Who's the audience? Who's Paul writing to? You say the church at Colossae. That's true. Verse two. Specifically, he's writing to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. I wanted to just maybe cover the first two verses today and go into a little bit more depth, and I thought, I don't want to do 24 years in Colossians like that guy that I talked about. I want to get through the book. So verses 1 through 13, I'm just picking out a couple things to give us some insight, some understanding into this book, into this, the first 13 verses, into this introduction, if you will, of Colossians. But I have to stop and look at the word saints. We are saints. You know, in California, you have all these cities named after saints. You have San Francisco, Santa Barbara, San Fernando Valley, and San Diego. And you you could think of all these. The Santas are the women saints, and the Sands are the guy saints. So San Fernando and then Santa Barbara, if I've got it right. And so the Catholic Church was prominent 
in the 16, 17, 1800s, all up and down the coast of California. If you drive the 101, you see those bells every mile signifying this was the path they took to these missions. And these cities are where the missions were at. And just go on a map or go online and see how many cities are named after saints just in California, perhaps all over the country. And so in the Catholic Church, they place this heavy emphasis on saints. That's St. Nicholas or that's St. Peter. And these saints do all these different things. And according to the scripture, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've turned to him in repentant faith, you are a saint. You should get a city named after you. We're all saints in Christ Jesus. That's who Paul's writing to. It's not these special elect certain people that are saints. No, you are saints in Christ, and the Greek word is hagios. It means to be set apart, different from the world, to be like Jesus. When you are saved and Christ comes in you, you are declared holy. You are declared righteous. You are justified in that moment. But then there's all the scriptures that talk about pursuing sanctification. In the book of Hebrews, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You are holy, but now you are on a track to pursue more and more Christ-likeness. That's what the Holy Spirit within you and I prompts us to do. So if you're a Christian, you go, I don't really want to be more like Jesus. I don't really want to pursue holiness. I don't want to be separate from the world. Then you have to ask yourself, am I really a Christian or not? Has Christ really come into my life? Is the Holy Spirit in me? Because the Spirit is holy. 92 times in the New Testament, hagios is placed in front of spirit signifying Holy Spirit. It's the same Greek word used here for saints. Hagios, holy ones. NIV, it's literally holy ones. Most of your Bibles probably say saints. If you're holy, you're walking in holiness. So if someone says, I'm, I'm holy, I'm a Christian, and their life bears no fruit of that, they don't want to pursue more Christ-likeness. They want to love the things of the world. Well, then you look at 1 John, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's a separation going on. Saints who are faithful brethren at Colossae. Sixty times in the New Testament, this word is used of God's children, Christians, saints. And perhaps this word holy, I just can't, get past because our culture is so unholy. They've gone completely in the opposite direction to where many of us can be desensitized and just slowly go down that path of it's really not that bad to where we're so blinded. We have all these blind spots to where we're starting to walk in the same manner of the world just in certain things and we don't even know it. So we have to constantly be on guard of these things. I can't turn a cartoon on for my kids without something popping up. Some commercial. It's like, oh, I got to get past this to the point where I'm like, it's almost to the point where I'm like, do I have to get rid of this? Am I just going to put books in front of my kids all day and have them read? I mean, they get tired of that. They get bored. So it's really easy to stick them in front of the TV and say, watch this cartoon. But even while it's sitting there loading on the fire stick, whatever you call it, there's things that are popping up. I'm like, what is this? They're trying to get into our lives however they can with immoral garbage. So what distinguishes, what distinguishes someone as a saint? Paul gives us at least 10 distinguishing marks of a saint in this letter alone. There's probably perhaps 20, but let me give you 10. 
number one, chapter one, verse 13. Saints have been delivered from the domain of darkness and have been transferred to the kingdom of Christ. If you're a saint, you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Number two, saints have redemption and forgiveness of sins through Christ. Chapter one, verse 14. Number three, saints have peace through the blood of Christ. Chapter one, verse 20. Number four, saints have been reconciled to Christ through his death. Chapter one, verse 22. Number five, saints must continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. Chapter 1, verse 23. Number six, saints have been made complete or full in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10. Number seven, saints have had their hearts circumcised in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 11. Number eight, saints have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised up with him through faith. Chapter 2, verse 12. Number nine, saints have been made alive with Christ and forgiven of all sin. Chapter 2, verse 13. And saints are not to submit to legalistic judgments or to the law, but to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you with these new moons and these Sabbath days and this food and angel worship and all this sorts of stuff. They're trying to pull you back under the law. You're free in Christ. If your consciences are clean, if it's sanctified in the word of God and prayer, if you're not breaking any commands of the law of Christ, if you're walking in the spirit, don't allow these people to judge you according to these legalistic commands and laws. Ten distinguishing marks I just gave you, perhaps there's 20 or 30 in this letter, of saints, who you are in Christ, reconciled, redeemed, delivered, full of peace, life, fulfillment, all through Christ, all that he's done for you, in him, through him, for him. Jesus is mentioned 70 times in this letter. 95 verses, 70 times. When I used to teach a junior high class, Blessed Hope in Simi Valley, I'd ask the kids, what does it mean to be a Christian? If someone comes in here today and wants to know more about Christianity, they're from another faith, what are you going to tell them? You'd be shocked how many things you hear before they get to Jesus. They'd say things like, I tell them to read their Bible. Okay, and that's good. What if they open up to Genesis and that's all they read? Okay, well, hopefully there's something in there that will point them eventually to Christ, right? But they'll say they they need to pray. They need to do good. They need to love people. I'd tell them to love God, and so on and so forth. Where's Jesus Christ? What about faith in Christ? What about repenting of your sins and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross? 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Seems kind of simple, but he's going to hammer home Jesus Christ. If you look at Colossians 2, verse 8, I think this is the bottom line. He goes, okay, saints, here you go. This is the bottom line summed up Colossians 2, 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. The traditions of men, does that sound familiar? Catholicism, Mormonism. How many people up here in Idaho are day after day just going along with the traditions of men? 
Sure, they can have the name of Jesus Christ even in their church. I heard that recently. I looked online of a man that came out of Mormonism or LDS, Latter-day Saints, however they want to call themselves. And he said his mom was pleading with him, how can you deny Christ? She goes, we have Jesus Christ in our very name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yet they've been led astray. They've been deceived by deception and philosophy and wisdom of men saying that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, saying that Jesus Christ is a created being, that he's not the eternal God. That negates John 8, 58. Before Abraham was born, I am. I'm the everlasting God. And so I've talked to Mormons about that, and I say, you know, the Bible teaches that Jesus is from everlasting to everlasting. He's the great I am. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. By him all things have been created. That's what Paul is stating in the book of Colossians. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's holding all things together. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says the same thing. By the word of his power he holds everything He's before everything. So I said, how can he be the spirit brother of Lucifer? How can he be a created being of God the Father, born of God the Father, and from everlasting to everlasting? It can't be both. It's a contradiction. And they just said, well, it's a mystery. And that's easy to do when you run into a blatant contradiction. You just say, well, that's a mystery. No, he's either the uncreated creator of all things, God in the flesh, or he's not. So Paul says, don't be taken captive through these philosophies of men, traditions of men. All right, here's my last question from chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. What's Paul and Timothy's prayer for this church? What's their prayer? It's found in verses 9 and 10. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I must say, I don't think I've ever prayed like that or I don't think of praying like that. I pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I pray, Lord, I want to know your will or help me to live your will or may your will be done in my life like Jesus commands us to pray. Matthew 6, 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. I pray that. But pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. It's as if the Colossians and us, when we come to Christ, we have a knowledge of his will. But we can grow in that. We can be filled more with that. And that's Paul's prayer and Timothy's prayer for this church is that they would be filled with this knowledge. And if you just continue on the prayer into verse 10, I think it's good to put the word help in front of many prayers, as I've mentioned before. Help us, Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Help us, Lord, to please you in all respects. Help us, Lord, to bear fruit in every good work. Help us to increase in the knowledge of God. And then verse 11, strengthen us, Lord, with your power, according to your might, attaining steadfastness or endurance and patience and joyously giving thanks to the Father. Those should be 
our prayers. Leah's reading a book right now, or at least was, The Prayers of the Apostle Paul, and I, I'm pretty sure this one's probably in there. When you don't know how to pray, it's good to model your prayers off of prayers from the Bible, to even memorize texts like this and then pray them to the Lord. Ephesians 5.17 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Matthew 7.21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is God's will that you would be sanctified and holy. You say, what's God's will? I'm a Christian. I don't know what God's will is. Well, thankfully he gives us several scriptures throughout the New Testament where it plainly says this is God's will. You want to know God's will? Know his word. Study his word. That's his letter for you and I. That's where his will is revealed. Specifically, his will is that by doing right, you would silence ignorant and foolish people. 1 Peter 2.15. His will is that you live uprightly in this world. So when foolish people come along, they have nothing to say against you. And if they say something against you, essentially they're demeaning Christ because it's him who lives in you and it's him who you're walking in line with. That's a good place to be. If people have something bad to say about you and you're like, I'm just doing what Jesus commands. I'm just doing Jesus' will. I'm living for him. I'm kind. I'm gentle. I'm walking in the spirit. And they come at you with accusations. That's a great place to be. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 2 Peter 3.9, It's his will that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Anyone who thinks God hates me, God doesn't love me, God wants me to perish. No, God's will is that none would perish. John 6.39 and 6.40, it's not God's will that any of his children fall away, but that all of them would continue believing and be raised up on the last day. That's a summary of John 6.39 and 40. According to Paul, if you want to truly understand the will of God and be able to carry it out, You need to be filled with this knowledge, true knowledge of his will. Verse 10, so that. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I want to just look at that phrase as I get ready to close here in just a minute. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He uses the same phrase in Ephesians 4.1, Philippians 1.27, and 1 Thessalonians 2.12. The word worthy means having worth that matches actual value. Are you walking in a way that attributes the value to Christ that should be given to him? Does your life reflect how valuable Christ is to you? Perhaps that's another way to put this. When someone looks at your life, your conduct, how you talk, what you think, what you say and do and at your workplace, does it reflect how valuable Christ is not only to you but just who he is by his nature, Lord, God, creator. So that's the question for us today. How's your walk with the Lord? Are you walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? Paul mentions this group in Philippians 3. He says, for many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. 
whose end is destruction, whose God is their shame, whose glory is their appetite, who set their minds on earthly things. He's weeping over people that aren't walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. There's many people that call themselves Christians today but aren't walking in a manner worthy. I read of a man who walked 46,600 miles over a period of 11 years. That breaks down to about 348 miles a month, 12 marathons essentially a month that he walked, 11.2 miles a day, equivalent to four hours. I did the math this morning. Hopefully it's right. 11 miles a day walking. Why would someone do that? He wore out 49 pairs of shoes. He walked to 63 countries. He walked through the Philippines and he had 30 soldiers around him with ammunition strapped across their chest to keep him safe. He's like, I'm walking for peace, but yet I've got soldiers all around me with guns on them. I don't know if this makes sense. But what motivates someone to walk in this manner? Well, he was doing it to raise awareness for children who suffer from violence. That's a pretty good cause, right? I think many of us are blind or not even aware to what goes on with children in this world, children in the womb, children outside of the womb, child sex trafficking, slavery, violence, neglect. The more you look into it, the more you talk about it, the more you're just overwhelmed. And I think there's a video that came out recently, and I haven't seen it yet, but that's they're trying to call awareness to this thing, and hopefully it's biblically oriented, and people will, there'll be whistleblowers that come out and, there'll be more awareness to eradicating these kind of things. All sorts of people in this world walk in a manner worthy of something. They, have val- they place value on something, and we should place value on awareness of children and what they're going through, absolutely. But what is the most valuable thing to us? Paul didn't go to the Corinthians and say, I have determined to know nothing among you except abortion rights, ch- child slavery, Um, persecution. He could have listed all these things, which rightly so need to be up very high on our list. But Jesus Christ and him crucified, the value of who Jesus Christ is, that millions of people, billions of people don't know the name of Jesus Christ. People are going to hell. They need to hear about him. They need to know the one who saved you and me. So we need to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We have a purpose. We have a goal. We have something to be walking for. The question is, are we doing it? So when you walk, walk as though Christ is walking through you. When you speak, speak as though Christ is speaking through you. When you work, work as though Christ is working through you. When you serve, serve as if Christ is serving through you. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Colossians three seventeen. It's all for him, through him, by him. He is everything.